It's a beautiful fall day. It's not bad in October. You can wear a t-shirt this afternoon, uh, but Bethany and I have a worrying thing. She's uh, like ready for the cold weather, and I'm, I'm ready for the transition. I grew up in California. You grew up in Florida. How are you excited I know, but about? But this is what I want. I wanted to stop sweating. I rebuke that sweater out. in the name of Jesus right now. I Listen, just say there's no space for that sweater for at least another two weeks. That's all I have to say. You look lovely, but oh, thank you. That's but the nice. sweater. Mm -mm. Okay. All right. Well, it's great to see all of you. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15 as we continue our vision series for the year ahead. Yeah, and if you're new or you're visiting, my name is Bethany Allen. This is John Mark. And every fall, we run a vision series. Now, in a normal year, it's all about uh, apprenticing under Jesus, uh, mixed with a plan for kind of our year ahead. Right. But this is 2020, and so we're going to do a series of pastoral words for the church this year. To start off, close, just take a deep breath and close your eyes for a minute. And I just want to take you through a mental exercise. Imagine yourself at 80 years old or even at 90. More specifically, imagine the kind of person you want to become in the glory years of your life. Don't imagine your resume, but your eulogy what people say about you as you transition from this life into the life to come. I'm guessing that the future you in your imagination right now is not uptight or narcissistic or reactionary or mad all the time. I'm guessing you see yourself becoming somebody who is compassionate and wise and happy and at peace person who over decades has become like Jesus through your gender and personality and all of that, but who has become their real true self. Yeah, and with your eyes still closed, would you just imagine for a second your grandchildren around you? And imagine that they ask you, Grandma, Grandpa, you were there in 2020. Tell me about it. What was it like? And how did you live? Now, feel free to open your eyes. Thank you for that. We take you through that mental exercise to remind you of what you already know, that there is a direct link between how we live now and who we become then. As we like to say, we don't, like, we don't become like Jesus by accident. None of us do. It's like we're going to wake up one day at 70 or 80 and look in the mirror and think, wow, I'm just like a saint. It's amazing. <laughs> Who would have thought? We become like Jesus through a long obedience in the same direction, through, in the language of the New Testament, through a way of life that is countercultural mm -hmm. to the inertia of our city and our nation and our time. And just to clarify expectations, and bear with me on this next part, you should know that we have an agenda for your life. So if you're wondering, like, do they have an agenda? <laughs> yes, we do. We absolutely have an agenda for your life. We want you to become that person in your mind's eye, and we view it as our job as pastors to function as a companion and a guide to you on your spiritual journey. Pastor as spiritual director is kind of our model, working model of a pastor, not pastor as politician or social activist or community organizer, though all of those have a place in the church. 
but we view it as our job to journey with you toward God and your real true self. As Paul said to the church in Philippi, and I love this line, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. So that's like our mission statement. We work with you for your joy. So next time you feel a tension, like you're at church or you're gathering with us online, and you feel a little bit of an intention like between you know your agenda for your life and our agenda for your life, that tension is real. Let me just call it out in the room. But our agenda is not, hear me, to coerce or to control you at all, but to aid you on your spiritual journey to find your home in God. Of course, the million-dollar question is how, right? If the end goal, if the telos of the spiritual journey is to become like Jesus as we come home to God, how does that happen in the digital age, in a city like Portland, through a year like COVID? And our church is built around, really the question there is how do we change? How do we, or grow or mature, or whatever language you prefer. Our church is built around a working theory of change that is our best attempt at an answer. There's a way more complex version than this one, but the simple version is we change through teaching, or a better word for that really is truth, or mental maps in the language of psychology, as we take on the mental maps of Jesus, or what the New Testament calls the mind of Christ, and we start to live in alignment with his vision of human flourishing. Through practice, or the practices, as we unhurry our life and habituate our body in the peace and the presence and the power of God through community as we live in a multi-generational family that we call church and we grow up to be like the fathers and mothers in the church and above all by the Holy Spirit who's at the center of all we do as we, if you think about the attachment system in your brain, what more and more neuroscientists are calling the strongest part of our body as we attach to the love of God through the love of the Spirit. Mm. This, of course, happens over time, and that's double entendre in our model. It's time as in this doesn't happen over like months, not like you go through Bethany's six-week class, and at the end of it, you're like the next Mother Teresa or whatever. <laughs> this is a lifetime journey, but it's also time as in how much time we give to God yeah. through things like practices or spiritual disciplines, where one of the main things we do is we just give our time over to God to let God form us. And it also happens through pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. As we are stripped of our attachments and set free from all the things that we think we need to live a happy life but actually hold us back from the very life we crave and to become people of love and joy and peace. Now, this very simple paradigm is our best attempt to synthesize biblical theology and the best of learning from the social sciences under that kind of rubric of all truth is God's truth, as Tom Skinner used to say. But this is a very Western approach to change, like to diagram out the spiritual journey on a slide. And I'm all for it, I'm a Westerner, but Jesus wasn't a professor of social psychology from Portland State. He was a Jewish rabbi from the Galilee. His teaching style was full of story and metaphor and a cryptic enigma or two or a hundred. So it comes as no surprise that Jesus' most in-depth teaching that we're about to read on how we change is in the form not of a whiteboard diagram, but in a word picture from his first century, very agrarian kind of world. Read with us from John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. 
No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, I love that Jesus' metaphor here for spiritual formation is earthy and it's raw. It's really human and messy because life is messy, because it's complex. It's not linear. You know, we're a lot more like the plant than we are like a slide. And notice there is one command in Jesus' teaching here, remain in me. The word remain is meno in Greek. It can be translated remain or abide or dwell or better yet, to make your home in. So make your home in me as I make my home in you. So good. Now from that one command, there are three stages, uh, a three-stage process of spiritual formation in Jesus' teaching. First, we read that we're to abide, then to grow, and then to bear fruit. Now if you put it in the language of our church, it's first to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then do what he did. This base, this, the baseline of all spiritual formation is what generations of followers before us have called abiding. And this actually wouldn't be a vision series, I don't think, if we didn't include a Dallas Willard quote. Come so are on. you ready? We're just going to drop one on you right now. Are you ready emotionally? I was you like, prepared? Bethany, if I pay you $20, yeah. will you put my quote in so people don't get mad at me I'm still again? waiting for that $20, but yeah, absolutely. So uh, <laughs> here it is, Dallas Willard. He says this. The first and most basic thing we can do and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on, less th on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Mm. This is what Jesus is getting at with the menno. Our mind, and through that our body itself, is to make its home in God. In fact, the word minnow is used 10 times in just these two paragraphs, which means Jesus is clearly driving the point home. And minnow in our text is a command. It's something that we do or do not do. So if last week's teaching from James 1 was about the role of things we cannot control in our spiritual formation, then this week's teaching from John 15 is about the role of things we can control. If last week was about passive spirituality, then this week is about active if last week was, what is our response to a year like 2020, <laughs> this week is, what is our responsibility? And our responsibility is to abide. But to circle back to the million dollar question, like how, right? How do we take a diagram or a metaphor yep. 
and in the language of the Sermon on the Mount, put it into practice. And well, the answer that the first followers of Jesus came up with, literally millennia before us, we're not the first people to ever follow Jesus in a, through a hard time, just <laughs> shocker, I know. But the answer the first followers of Jesus came up with, I think is still the best, is what they called, their language not ours, a rule of life. Now that is ancient language, not modern. And we, as not to stereotype, but we are a generation of rule haters. So hear me out, all of you rule haters in the room. Like, just give me five minutes before your limbic system like freaks out. Like, just deep breath. We'll come. Just, I think you'll love the idea when you get your head around it. Pay very close attention to the language there. It's rule of life, singular, mm -hmm. not rules for life, plural. In fact, rule is not even a very good translation of the original word. The original Latin word was regula, where we get English words like regular or regulation, as well as our word ruler, as in like, think grade school, right? Because it lit, the word literally means a straight piece of wood. There's a lexicographical debate about its origins, but a number of scholars argue that it was the word used in the ancient world for a trellis in a vineyard. Either way, um, you know, think of a winery where there's like a vine and then there's a trellis underneath it. Either way, that metaphor was used very early on by the church fathers and mothers who just took Jesus' teaching that we just read from John 15, abide in me, of the, the kind of word picture of the vineyard, to its logical conclusion and said, listen, for a vine to bear fruit, if you imagine a winery in your mind's eye, and um, it needs a trellis, it needs a support structure to lift it up off the ground to point it in a certain direction. Otherwise, it will bear a fraction, a vine without a trellis, well, if it even gets out of the ground, it will bear a fraction of the fruit that it's capable of, and the little that it does bear will be vulnerable to predators like a rabbit or a coyote or to disease. In the same way, for a follower of Jesus to, quote, remain in the vine and bear much fruit, just like Jesus taught us, we need some kind of a trellis. We need some kind of a support structure to create space for abiding, to index our growth in the right direction, to protect us from disease or kind of attack. And that is a rule of life. So what exactly is it to drill down? Andy Crouch defines it as a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. Very simple and to the point. Our good friend Pete Scazzaro defines it as a call to order our entire life in such a way that the love of Christ comes before all else, before our career, before our hobby, before our entertainment, before all else, the love of Christ. He goes on to say, nurturing a growing spirituality with depth in our present day culture will require a thoughtful, conscious, intentional plan for our spiritual lives. I love that, a plan for our spiritual lives. I mean, most of us are at some level in an urban context, like a lot of people in the room and in our church, you have a plan for your retirement or you're like, no, I don't. Well, that's something to think about. <laughs> you have a plan for your career. You have a plan for the next few years. You have a plan for rent or whatever. You have a plan for you fill in the blank. Very few, some of us have a plan for parenting or even for our marriage, but very few people have a plan for their, quote, spiritual lives, a plan for how to follow Jesus. How do we become that person in our mind's eye who's 80 or 90 and not just a narcissistic, miserable person that all of the great-grandchildren avoid? And those people exist, and there's not too few of them, right? How do we become the opposite? How do we become like Jesus? 
I would define a rule of life just like this, a schedule of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did, or better said, what he would do if he were us, as we live in alignment with our deepest passions and priorities. And if you still, if I've yet to sell you on the language of the word rule, fun fact, early on, at least for the first few centuries of the church, it was not called a rule of life, it was called a way of life. In Acts 22, Paul writes, or Paul you know, says, I persecuted the followers of this way, and in most translations, way there is capitalized. Later in Acts 24, I worshiped, I worshiped the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, again capitalized, which they call a sect. Later on, when Latin became the lingua franca of the Mediterranean, the language turned into rule of life, but way of life or rule of life, same difference. But while the idea seedbed of a rule of life goes all the way back to the book of Acts, it was not clarified and codified until the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. And this is really interesting. Just let me nerd out on you for just a minute before we get into it. Because it rose to popularity in a time of widespread corruption in the church and chaos in the culture. Mm. In 312, when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Jesus, the legitimacy of which is very much up for debate, the way of Jesus moved from a persecuted minority to a political majority. And the result was a mixed bag. On one hand, women and children were no longer burned alive and men were not thrown into the arena you know, for sport. On the other hand, the tragic kind of after effect was widespread compromise with what the New Testament calls the world. Not long after that, the empire itself started to decline with the Visigoth sack of Rome in 410 as the tipping point. As the empire fell back into a feudal system that we now in hindsight call the Dark Ages, the result was chaos in the culture, social unrest, tribalism, violence, the abuse of power, all of that was normal for a thousand years. It was during this time that we have the desert fathers and mothers in North Africa and in Damascus and Syria who started what we now on the backside call monasticism. And from them, we inherit this like very specific idea of a rule of life. And a lot of very smart people have drawn parallels between the Roman Empire in the fourth and fifth century and America today. Whether or not that is valid is beyond my pay grade. I have no idea if like our best years are ahead of us as every politician on the planet would have us believe, or if like we're just 2020 was year one of the seven-year tribulation in Revelation, and I don't know. Hopefully, it's the former, not the latter. I don't know. That's over my pay grade. I could honestly see it going either way, but for sure, this is what I know. We live in a time of widespread compromise in the church. Mm -hmm. Think of the compromise of so many, quote, Christians not disciples of Jesus, but Christians, and it's not the same thing, on both the right and the left, be that the picture. My wife was showing me that just, I was gutted to see a picture of the Proud Boys rally uh, a week or two ago with people praying at that, thinking, what in the world? Or the capitulation of so many of our fellow millennials to the left's vision or revision of marriage, sexuality, and gender. All that to say, whatever the future of the church in the West is, I think it is neo-monastic. It's built around a rule of life. I think the only thing that will survive the coming secular apocalypse where our nation is increasingly without any coherent moral framework at all mm -hmm. 
is, I think, the only thing, the only kind of church, the only kind of disciple of Jesus that will make it through the next season is a robust and resilient kind of apprentice to Jesus who is living in a thick web of relational life. Yeah, and I would argue this isn't something we can decide on later, but it's something we, in fact, need to do now. Yeah. In this moment, um, if it's revealed nothing else, it's showed us that our deep we have a deep need for the way of Jesus to extend beyond our pseudo, half-practiced, comfort-driven apprenticeship. Come on, We need Bethany. something more. We do. We yeah. desperately do. We need pathways and structure that will lead us out of the chaos of this moment into regular rhythms of deep encounter with Jesus himself. Yeah. If we're to come out of this season more like him, more resilient, more faithful, more open and alert to the vision of God uh, and what he has for this world and for our lives, then we don't have a choice. This isn't an option anymore. We don't have a choice but to embrace the rule of life uh, because it will lead us, we believe, into just that. And for those of you that are new to our church, and I think there's a number of you in the room, I don't recognize a bunch of you, so let's make sure we meet after this, which is great. But just to catch you up to speed or any of you that are with us online, we're in the middle of a two-year-long process of developing a rule of life for our church. We started to drip the idea last fall um, with our practice, and we said, you know, kind of let's start with you developing your own. If you want, everything we do is voluntary, right? You developing your own, and then let's work toward developing one for our entire church. And so just to remind you, the plan is, and every, any kind of plan right now is Kind of a joke slash in pencil. <laughs> but the plan is, after we finish practicing the way, sometime next year to re-architect our entire church around a rule of life. But in a crisis, as we all know, timelines are accelerated. And at the beginning of COVID, we put um, our uh, kind of into place a rule of life that was specific for COVID-19. And I just want to clarify, this is not our future Bridgetown Church rule of life. Some of it is very specific to COVID. And it doesn't have the elegance of what we're working on kind of right now behind the scenes. But it's a good stopgap to hold us over between now and then. All that to say, this rule that we're about to walk you through is 100% invitational. So this is not, hey, we're asking all of you to do this. It's, hey, here's what our leaders recommend for living through all that is COVID. And by that, I just mean that as like a moniker for everything that is the world right now. Mm -hmm. We think it's wise. It's how we are living as leaders, as a staff, all together. And we just want to invite you to join us for the season to come. All of this, if you want to come back and take a look at it later, is at bridgetown.church/rule. And if you want more kind of in-depth teaching on how to develop your own rule of life, as well as, I think, a really good workbook that Tyler and the crew put together, visit practicingtheway.org slash unhurry. But let's just take you through the rule in 10 minutes. Yeah. Ready, go. Ready, go. First, uh, we would say start the day in quiet prayer and scripture. So all of that, um, yes, but do that before anything digital. That's the most important thing we want you to get before yeah. Twitter or Instagram. If you hear nothing or else. television, just, right. Just, it's just if you like, tune out everything after this, just... This part. Prayer and scripture before anything, um, yeah, yeah, digital. Um, because believe it or not, John Mark, this is, and y'all will be shocked to know this too, for many people, there is a real temptation to reach for the distraction or the stimuli of social media first thing in the morning. <laughs> Turns out. Uh, <laughs> Start but, your day with Facebook. Right, you know? but there's, a, there's good news. <laughs> and we wonder why the world is all freaking out. Right. But there's good news for us. There's uh, lots of ways you can help yourself avoid that. And we would say... 
couple things. Consider first getting an alarm clock. Uh, if you don't know what that is, you can Google and, it. You mean not like an not like an app alarm? Yeah, clock. no, like an, an app alarm. Clock. It's like, like an actual like the object box that you plug into the wall. Alarm Tells clock. you time. Yes. It makes little noises. Sometimes uh, a radio if you like a little jazzy morning wake up, which I do. <laughs> so uh, depends on I depends so on your mood. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Bethany's like hello. Just a little Cinderella moment, which I'm here for. Uh, so get an alarm clock if you can, um, and and with that consider leaving your phone outside of the bedroom. That's yes. just an encouragement on yes. multiple levels, even for you couples specifically yes. in the morning or this morning, this is a word for you. Um, and then also uh, consider... Was that like a subtle that was from like a single a subtle, person to married couples have sex like, thing? Was that well, what I that mean, was? No, but I mean, yes, you should have sex. Uh, am I getting red? It's getting hot all of a sudden in this room. Keep going, this I is fantastic. Mean, stay with each other. I'm um, great if it was, that's fantastic. Yeah, have sex instead of, anyway, uh, wake each other up, I don't know. Um, you can also... <laughs> Keep, back to the notes. <laughs> Keep going. Consider um, setting your apps. You, know, you can do this on your iPhone now um, to co not come online until a certain time of day. You can yep. do that at 9 a.m., whatever yep. it is. Um, or you could go super old school, and you could actually turn your phone off at night. There's an off button. You can turn it off and then turn it back on after you've spent time with Jesus in the morning, and that's a real thing. And I would say, even for me, there's been a season where God called me to do that because I needed to break an addiction. And he was like, I need to see that you can put this idol down and it yeah. can go to sleep. We get it out of your hands. So just yeah. word of encouragement um, to you guys. Now, I know that a lot of you have kids, so this, um, this one is kind of intimidating sometimes, and it can look really different for you. And so for some of you, it may mean you wake up a lot earlier than your kiddos and you spend time alone with God. But if that's not an option for you, I think what we would say for sure is that um, it's really about maybe listening to a psalm or reading a psalm and listening to the Bible app for five minutes, maybe during your kid's nap morning, nap time, or whatever it may be, but just find a way to to do it. The goal here really is to simply put this into practice. Whatever yeah. season you find yourself in, if you can take an hour in the morning to do it, great. Uh, if it's five minutes to do this, great. The goal is no matter what it looks like to simply start your day in quiet with God. Secondly, create some kind of a grad, uh, gratitude ritual. You know, we're all, or at least most of us, are living with a ton of anxiety right now. And if you read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 or Paul in Philippians 4, they both seem to see gratitude as a practical way to move from anxiety to a deep trust in God's love. I think that is because anxiety, if you want to define it, anxiety is thinking about what we do not have in the future, whereas gratitude is thanking God for what we do have in the present. Yeah. Good. Gratitude is a way to come back to the moment and to the goodness of our life before God, which is easy to forget in the news cycle, and from there to kind of re-up our trust in God himself. Mm -hmm. Now, there are all sorts of ways to do this. Um, most of the time what I do is I just have this little, like, it's not a Post-it note, but kind of little scrap of paper from Canoe that's on my desk, and every morning I take a new sheet out, and I write down three things that I'm grateful for to kind of begin my time. And then I have it there as I'm reading through my psalm and kind of reading scripture in the New Testament. And I'll just write down any like word or phrase from scripture that really shimmers at some level on my heart that I feel is a word for me that day or just anything from listening prayer. And then I literally carry it with me in my pocket or whatever. By the end of the week, I have like crumpled papers all <laughs> over my clothing or whatever just to come back to it through the day. Recently, I read this um, interesting thing from a neuroscientist who's writing about how joy is the supra emotion and it can go with all the other emotions and how we need it to live well. And his advice was to 
write up a list of 10 of the best moments of your life, and then every morning spend five minutes sitting in that memory. So for me, like, there's a birthday I had in, like, on this deck in Montana with some of my closest friends, or I think of Fourth of July at the beach one year. It was just this magical sunset. And I'll just come back to that moment, feel it in my body, and just feel God in that moment, and let, just, it will happen without, with very little effort. Let my heart well up in gratitude to God. And the byproduct of that is you, you feel really happy after five minutes of that. You're like, yeah, it's okay. It's a, whatever, whoever wins, it's gonna be okay, right? And you just feel that joy. Um, another great idea is not just to direct gratitude to God, but to other people as mm-hmm. well. And so some people do this on a weekly basis. It's like in their rule of life. Some people, do, I know one person who does this every single day and just send some kind of word of gratitude or appreciation. It could be a text message or an email. It could be a thank you card that you write by hand. I like a bunch of my friends, we've been getting back into like writing notes to each other. It's like kind of old school, kind of hipster, kind of lame. I don't know what it is, but we're like mailing each other little thank you cards and stuff. Like there's something to that or it could just be calling up somebody, a parent or a family member or an aunt or a pastor or whoever and just saying thank you for your investment in my life. It's just a, never been a better time for that. So create some kind of a, do whatever you want. There's a thousand ways to do this, but create kind of work gratitude at a discipline level mm-hmm. into your week, into your day, into your life. Mm-hmm. Third. Third, exercise or go for a walk. Now, this may sound a little strange to some of you or out of place, at least in the realm of spiritual practices, but it's really not. Jesus did a lot of walking. He did a lot of walking. It's who's, why is that not a spiritual discipline? I mean, I don't know. Put yes. that in a book or something. That'll do well, I think. Okay. Um, this uh, is something we would say, honestly, is more important than ever. We were talking about it. Right. Um, largely because it's one of the best ways to engage your body and stay grounded with God. Mm. Um, we're in a season where so many things are disembodied. I just want you to think about Zoom. Do you remember that? Are, are you triggered? Rem- are you out of your body yes. now? Completely dissociated, <laughs> all of you. Uh, at least I am. Um, you know, we're on our Instagram feeds all day long, news feeds, we're on emails, we're even doing phone calls, but all of which are, are predominantly virtual. They're not truly face-to-face or embodied. Yeah. And so there's a real need right now for all of us to get out of these virtual spaces and connect in with what's actually real. Um, So we would recommend taking a walk every day or doing an exercise class or even breathing, which, yeah, like it's weird you have to tell yourself to do that, but I think more than ever we probably need to practice breathing. And really it's these embodied practices that will not only help us truly at a chemical and physiological level, they'll reset our nervous systems, regulate blood pressure, those kind of things, but they also help us at a spiritual and emotional level Um, When you walk or run, you're engaging in what psychologists and probably neuroscientists are calling bilateral stimulation, which actually is this ability to decrease anxiety and allow space for the brain to process events and emotions in a balanced way. Hmm. We need a little bit of that. Interesting, that balance, yeah. How it does it, which I would say then frees us up to engage the spirit in deeper ways when we're more in tune with those things. So engaging our bodies will force us in the best way to see the world as it really is, not as it's being presented to us. 
Number four, one focal practice. That's language from the philosopher Albert Borgman, who's an expert from the University of Montana. He was an expert and kind of early expert in technology and its impact on Western culture. There's an excellent overview of his work if you want to read. It's a kind of a devotional book called Living to Focus that's really good. But he writes about the need in the modern era for what he calls focal practices, which are like the opposite of multitasking. They are any activity where you focus on the task at hand to an extent that at some level you kind of lose track of time and you get sucked into kind of flow. You're in the moment. It could be anything from gardening to painting to to playing the guitar, to cooking, to reading poetry, to playing chess, to making love to your spouse, to spiritual disciplines like praying or reading scripture. For me, it's like my morning time with God. It's every single night before bed, I read fiction. It's just like what I do. I just last night I finished Dune, rereading Dune, one of my favorite novels of all time, to get ready for the movie that just got delayed. Sad, uh, <laughs> sad emoji face. Sad. I think in emojis now. What does that say about it's 2020? Great. I like. I love that. Sometimes I'll be writing like, how do I express the sad emoji face? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, can't put that. That's in. an evolved experience. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. Like, I think it's devolved, not, but I love. Thank but you. For I'm that. on board. The idea is to have a regular time, at least once a week, or I shoot for once a day, where you do something that is life-giving for your soul, and for a brief time period, whether it's 20 minutes or a few hours, you don't think about the news or the election or the future of COVID-19 or are we living through the end of Western civilization. <laughs> you just set that aside for a moment, much of which will just cause nothing but fear, and you just present yourself and your body before God. Think of it as your kind of regular dose of joy. And again, this is so important in our spiritual formation and our discipleship to Jesus. Joy is our first weapon mm -hmm. in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is very hard for the enemy to lead astray people who are healthy and happy, wow. who are well-rested and are just full of joy and contentment in their everyday life before God. It's mm -hmm. really hard to tempt people like that. And more importantly, joy is the first step we make into the inner life of the Trinity. Yeah. Fifth, uh, we would say to establish some kind of consistent relational touch point, whether that be with a close friend or a family member or someone in your community. And this can look all kinds of ways for me, and I know for John Mark too, this looks like having a set weekly touch point with our friends. For him, it's Friday. Yeah. For me, it's Wednesday night and Friday morning. Um, the point is that you would have space, uh, a space weekly where you are known and seen as well as knowing and seeing someone else. And while there are limits to what this looks like, you know, kind of in today's day and age, we're yeah. still distancing, we're still masking. There are also lots of platforms and ways to do this, to stay connected. And I think what we would say is it is always, always worth it. Number six, limit the intake of news. You know, I'm, uh, this goes without saying, but the 24-7 news cycle is toxic for the soul. Its blatant use of clickbait fear-mongering is an attempt to make money off of our attention, our anxiety, and our anger. That is not a slam on journalists at all for whom I have a lot of respect. It's just a tragic flaw in the system, the shift from kind of institution-based news to digital marketing-based news. And the best way, I think, to fight it is to set a self-imposed limit that you pick, but set it, put it in writing, like literally like increase the app thing on your phone to where it will cut you off. For me, it's once a day for no more than 20 minutes. And then once a week, I read kind of longer op-eds and articles from The Economist or whatever on Instapaper. But remember, as Hui Hui Tan put it, and this is back into the realm of formation, she said, you are what you contemplate. 
meaning you become like what you think about on a regular basis for better or for worse. And I don't know about you, but I have no desire to become like the front page of the New York Times. That's just not <laughs> appealing to me. That's not the kind of person I wanna become. So there's a measure of responsibility where we stay up to date on the world, but there's also a measure, a greater measure of responsibility where we have to curate the inputs, inputs into our mind through news, social media, entertainment, Netflix, all we have to, we curation of our thought life before God is one of the first and most important aspects of our spiritual mm -hmm. formation. And in our constant world right now, where for a lot of us, we're just like scared, what's gonna happen? And what, you know, waking up this morning, like what's, what's the status? You know, I've, I've been yeah. offline for 24 hours in COVID world, that's like offline for six months, you know what I mean? I was yeah. just like a beatnik who went and found myself in the mountains or whatever. So like what happened over the last 24 hours? We just have to set that aside and limit it as we move forward. Yeah, yeah. So on that note, yeah. uh, we would also say limit screen time and escapist behavior. Um, now look, it's easy for all of us right now to want to indulge in escapist behavior. Uh, this is a hard, hard season, and I know you've heard it said, but we want to keep saying it. It's a painful season for many. It's marked by uh, real loss, personally, yeah. relationally, even emotionally. And the impact is real, and it's strong. But that said, the goal here isn't for us to avoid and escape the realities we're experiencing through alcohol or porn or food or staying busy or whatever it is. The goal for the apprentice of Jesus is actually to lean into them yeah. and to allow God to meet you in those spaces and allow him to transform you in those yeah. spaces, which means that, that we're going to have to be mindful about our potential escapes not just the ones we know about, but our potential escapes, and then set parameters around them to keep us from engaging them. Now, this also includes learning to have compassion for your compulsions. Mm. It's not just about what we're giving into, it's about why we're giving into them. So this may look like actually setting limits on your phones. You know, you can do that right now, just as we've been talking about. And then at the same time, processing why you were on your phone for as long as you were. Now, for others, it'll look like choosing to invite someone into what those temptations are for you and asking them to ask you about it. Um, how'd your week go? What did it look like? Where did you kind of go this way or that way? But what I think what we want to say is that none of us in our humanity, John Mark and myself very much included, yeah. are exempt from this. Right. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we actually have an opportunity right now in a new way to move through our compulsivity and medicating behaviors towards freedom, true freedom that's found uh, in the life of Jesus himself. Yeah. Number eight is prayer and fasting on Thursdays. Note the shift um, with our new fall schedule from Tuesday to Thursday. And we are actually calling all of you who are part of our church, or at least the invitation is, would you join us once a week in praying and fasting just from when you wake up until dinner or sundown on Thursdays? Just praying for God to pastor and deliver our church mm -hmm. and our city through this very hard time. Fasting, you know, is kind of, a, 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 in shorthand, it's kind of a way of praying with your body. But more, it's another way, back to what Bethany said, to come back to your body, to kind of get out of the digital space and into the real and like feel, like not just at an emotional level, yeah. but at a physiological level, feel the reality of your life before God. And in the language of Romans 12, to set your body before God as an offering. Mm. Almost done, number nine. Yeah, we would say making community or life and community a priority, doing it week in and week out. Now the main goal here is that you would both commit to and connect with your Bridgetown community on a regular basis. 
And despite how it feels sometimes, because I know how it can feel, the truth is we've never needed people or each other more. And as simple as it is, I think that connecting with your community can be one of the most impactful touch points we have in a season with such limited connection, especially as we anticipate going into our winter months. <laughs> now, communities are looking a little different in this season. As we move ahead in this COVID-19 reality, many of our communities will go back and forth uh, between gathering on Zoom, unless they're somehow able to gather in a big space with distance and masks, and meeting in triads with masks, which allows there to be a little bit more room for a safe distance. Now, if you're not in the Bridgetown, in a Bridgetown community, this is a shameless plug, you can still sign up and join one today. Uh, our basics class starts today. It's not too late to sign up, and you can do that at bridgetown.church basics. Finally. Finally, Sabbath and worship on Sunday. Remember in a pre-COVID world where we had like different spaces for different things? Remember oh, that? Weird. You had like a space to rest that was your apartment or your home, and then you had like a space to go to work, a lot of us, and then you had like a gym that you would go to in theory, wow. and then like you would have a date like somewhere else or whatever you do. Now, our whole life for the most part, not all of us, but most of us is all in our home and on our laptop. We sit at our kitchen table or whatever and we uh, work and we study and we date and we go to community and we worship Jesus, the same place where we watch the presidential debate, sad, and we tweet <laughs> and all of that from, I don't care what your political opinions are, I don't know, that's just, a, that's just yeah. a low point in yeah. human civilization. But. Um, <laughs> Like, it's all from the same place. Most yeah. of you were watching that the same place you're watching this, right? And so it can make it feel like we have a life with zero boundaries. Sabbath is more important than ever, um, not only because we are all exhausted from 2020 and, and vulnerable to temptation because our joy is low right now. We're not together. We're tired. Yeah. We don't have the same level of hope and confidence in the future. So we're all vulnerable right now because our joy level is low and we're tired. But more than that, because Sabbath is a boundary not in space but in time. Right. Mm -hmm. We're at the same kitchen table. You know, We, in theory, turn off our laptop and we change our experience, not of the place but of time, from the other six days of the week of kind of work and with it worry and want to rest and worship. Mm -hmm. And remember, Sabbath is not just a day to like chill and relax. It's also a day to give special attention to our soul and to our life before God and to God himself, to contemplate him. So central to our rule of life is to gather together for the Sunday live stream. Well done, you're doing that right now. And if at all possible, to invite a few people over from your community or your family or your friends to worship with you. And remember, with all of these practices, there's like an entry level, baseline, and kind of level up kind of practice version. You know, And Sabbath is a hard one because it's so important to emotional health and spiritual life, mm -hmm. but it's a high bar of entry. Like it's, you know, like silence and solitude, you can like do three minutes of it in the morning and be like, I do it every morning. Well done. Like, that's great. Sabbath is like 24 hours. You know what I mean? Yeah. So by definition of the word, it's a steep bar of entry. So if that's too much for a lot of you, you're new to this idea and you're just not in your muscle memory yet, it could be as easy as, you know, you have a few people over for church on Sunday and then you block out two hours after church where you put your phone away and you do like old school, like Sunday dinner or more Portland style, like Sunday brunch or whatever, <laughs> where you sit around the table and you're with some other people and your phone's gone 
And maybe it's just like kind of worship and a meal and a few hours out of your weekend. Pretty much that's doable for almost, not all, but almost all of you. Mm -hmm. Now that said, you know, there are times, we're nearing the end here, but there are times when church and community feel more like a discipline than delight. Mm -hmm. And let's just be honest, like for most of us now is one of those times. Uh, none of us, like I don't care how introverted you are, like maybe it was fun for three weeks, but none of us like the idea of live stream church or Zoom community, not me, not Bethany. In our opinion, it is not the future of the church. It is a temporary solution to get us through a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's the lesser of evils. It's that or we don't worship together for like a year or something. But you know, there are times, in, in times when church and community or even any of the practices feel a little bit like a slog, if you're just honest, and I know it's not that way for all of you, but it is for a lot, they are actually more important in those seasons, not less. And please just listen to me here. Think back to last week's kind of teaching from James 1. If we persevere through this time, it has the potential to mature us, to grow us at a really deep way, and specifically to shift our internal heart motivation, this mm -hmm. is a big part behind maturity here, from kind of an egoic narcissism kind of grasping for control to a kind of self-giving agape yeah. love. And that is one way to frame the entirety of the spiritual journey from ego to agape. Yeah. And you know, a lot of us, if we are honest with ourselves, and most of us is too scary to do it, a lot of the good things we do like church and community or even prayer are really based in a kind of narcissism. We do them because we like how they make us feel. And we might put it into Christianese, like I just feel like I'm growing spiritually or whatever. All great, that's not a bad thing. But often what happens when we don't feel like we're growing spiritually or we quote, get anything out of it or in like old school church language, people would say, I don't feel fed, which was like code for I don't like the pastor or whatever, you know, and before they shift church. And again, we can put Christian spin and language mm -hmm. and cliche around what really, and there's legitimate stuff in all of that, but really at a root is often about narcissism. It's yeah. so sad when people yeah. often kind of grow up in the church and then walk away and it's right at the spot where like they're not getting something out of it. It's the spot where they have the most to give to others yeah. and then they walk away. It's like you take what you get and then you abandon the church. So this is an incredible opportunity for us to yeah. let that narcissism die, yeah. to persevere, because at the end of the day, most of us are a part of a church or in community because of what we get out of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to forget that church isn't primarily about us growing spiritually, as important as that is. Yeah. Church isn't primarily about us getting anything out of it. It's not even primarily about us giving to other people. Primarily, church is about God. Yeah. Like we, the main reason we show up Sunday after Sunday right now in our living room with like pancakes in our pajamas or whatever is to worship God, yeah. is to reorient our heart back to its true north in God himself. And mm -hmm. so this time, none of us like it. I can't wait until we're all back in like a proper room together and I can hug somebody without like killing them. I cannot <laughs> wait for that day. But until then, this is a chance for us to let our hearts shift before God mm -hmm. and to come out of this people, not just of discipline, but people of agape love. Yeah. In closing, just a few very short pastoral words. Yeah. Uh, first, we just say, start where you are, not where you should be. 
Uh, if you're anything like me, when you hear something like this, uh, when it's presented, you feel like a little bit of panic in your heart. And I wouldn't say I'm not disciplined, but I also wouldn't say that I don't have a little aversion to rules or expectations. <laughs> and largely, this is really due to my fear of inadequacy. There's yeah. a touch of a perfectionism in me, but still, it often remains an obstacle for me when wanting to engage in something like this. But despite my fears, my buy-ins, my intentions, I really do let the expectation of trying to do and be all these things paralyze me when it comes to leaning into this kind of thing, which is why I want to say again, start where you are, not where you should be. Uh, a spiritual director I know often says, don't should on yourself, because <laughs> it usually... I just got that. Yeah. yeah, because it usually keeps you from the good in your life. And she's right. I truly believe the hardest part of implementing a rule of life, as daunting as it may seem, is simply getting started. Mm. Because in order to do that, you'll have to get very honest about where you're really at and what you're capable of in this season. You'll have to name your limits emotionally and relationally and even physically, and then from there determine what you can actually do. And then the hard part is letting that be good enough. It's not impossible for anyone, and I just want to say that to you, to our church. It's not impossible for anyone. It just requires honesty and commitment in both big and small ways. And I would encourage you, don't let yourself get in the way of the good work God wants to do in you and for you through yeah, this. Yeah. Secondly, we would say, you know, you already have a rule of life. Um, you may not know it, whether it's written or unwritten, conscious or unconscious, wise or foolish. The odds are that you have a way you live. You have some kind of a morning routine. You have a work-life kind of balance. You have a budget in theory or a typical kind of weekend. The question is not, do you have a rule of life? It's, do you know what your rule of life is? Are you conscious of it? And is it giving you the life that you actually want? Hmm. And the best way to do to figure that out is just to take a kind of emotional self-inventory. Like I love that saying from the business world, your, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results hmm. you are getting. Mm -hmm. And if you apply that maxim, not to like a widget factory, but to your spiritual formation or even <laughs> to your emotional life, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting. So if you feel far from God and anxious and upset all the time and you don't feel a deep level of attachment to God and whatever, the odds are that something about the system of your life yeah. is out of whack. Yeah. Francis Spufford, in his um, incredible book, Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense, He's a brilliant writer, and he writes about that feeling when you wake up on a Saturday morning with like a mild hangover, feeling empty, lonely, and a bit unfulfilled. And he writes about how at some point you have to grapple with the fact that your free choices are not delivering the life you want. Mm -hmm. That your freedom is what got you there, not your constraint. Mm -hmm. One way to think about America is as a social experiment that is an attempt to redefine freedom from its classical and Christian definition, which is about the freedom to pursue the good, to the American redefinition of freedom, meaning to do whatever the heck you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, which is much closer to what the New Testament calls slavery. But in our culture, any form of, this is very key to get, any form of constraint, especially if it comes from a, quote, external source, like God or scripture or church tradition or a rule of life from our church, we perceive as a threat to our freedom and therefore our happiness because we're living in a culture that says freedom is I get to do whatever the heck I want and happiness is the result of freedom. That's the two, two of the greatest lies of our culture. 
If that view of life and that kind of working, if that's working for you, okay, tune me out. But if you find yourself waking up thinking, is this it? Like, why does my life feel so empty? Why am I so anxious all the time? Why do I keep repeating self-destructive behavior, major or minor? Your free choices are what got you there. My free choices are what got me here. Mm -hmm. A rule of life is an invitation to a very different definition of freedom where you volunteer of your own free will for a set of constraints that over time set you free. Last. Finally, um, the short-term crisis, we would say, is over. And so we want to move from being people who are surviving to people who bear fruit. Yeah. It's been about seven months since the, our nation responded to the reality and impact that was COVID-19. do you feel like COVID's like dog years time? Uh, so seven I feel months like, is more like four I mean, years, three years, Yeah, I feel like I'm like, like finally 29, you know? <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's been a long, long season. You know, it's funny because early on I can remember thinking, how many more weeks of this? Yeah, they're not going like, to not let us worship for remember more that? than two weeks. Weeks. I mean, crazy. <laughs> we were so young then. Uh, <laughs> But the truth we is, were just kids. we were just kids. The truth is, what we thought might have been a short-term crisis has now become a long-term reality. Yeah. And with that, we've moved from a reactive survival response with all of its pendulum swinging to the unavoidable temporary new normal, which means we as the people of Jesus have to come to grips in new ways with what it is to be people who not just survived this, but were able to bear fruit in it and through it. We said it very early on, we had that teaching we did, again, 19 years ago, um, that this global pandemic would either be a disruption for good and for growth and for change in our lives, or it would be a vacuum that sucked us further into the vortex of our own isolated world. And what we want to say is there is still so much potential in this season of our lives for change. For this moment to be a moment we look back on and celebrate as individuals and as the church how we became more resilient and fruitful people, how we changed uh, by the discipline of leaning into rhythms that were contrary to the loud cultural narrative pull and how we were freed from its power through our abiding in Jesus. We are no longer just writing this thing out and the question we have to answer is what is in our control to change? What can we do to come out of this different people, which is what we really want? How can we come out ready for the next season? The rule of life, it is a trellis for us to grow on. It's the structure that's going to help us keep moving forward into becoming who we were always meant to be. Um, Let's end with another metaphor. We're actually working on our kind of future rule of life with a few other churches. And my friend Tyler Staten from Oaks Church in Brooklyn, who was here teaching in the summer, we were working on this together with um, a few other pastors. And he had this great kind of metaphor he used. And he said, a rule of life is like an anchor under a ship. You really should only feel it. Most of the time, you don't even know it's there. You should only feel it when you start to drift from where you want and need to be. And in the same way, a good rule of life will anchor you in abiding, and most of the time you won't even like feel it. I don't wake up in the morning and like morning prayer doesn't feel like a discipline anymore for me, it used to, but now it's just, it's a delight, I love it, it's in my muscle memory, I don't even think about it. Same with Sabbath, it's like in my internal body clock, even if I'm like traveling or whatever, Friday night comes around, I'm just like ready to go to bed at 8.30 p.m. or something. 
Um, it only feels like a discipline when I start to drift and get off center, mm -hmm. either because, like think of the ship analogy, because of a storm like 2020, or just because the cultural cross currents move me in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So don't let 10 practices or whatever scare you off. If you do this right, if you craft one that's right for where your personality, introvert, extrovert, whatever, your stage of life, do you have little kids, are you single, whatever, if you craft a good one, you won't really even feel it, and it will anchor you in abiding. And that, my friends, is what we all crave, life in God. That's what Jesus came, is to not just teach us like a way to live as in a lifestyle, of course that, but it's a lifestyle that was designed to make space for us to experience his invitation through his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at his ascension to heaven. Yeah. Now we all have access to the inner life of the Trinity through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And there is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, open arms to all of us every morning when we wake up mm -hmm. and feel that pull toward Facebook or whatever. Every morning we wake up, there's the inner life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit saying, come, mm. we welcome you. Participate in our love and our joy and our peace. Mm. In closing, and, and that's all a rule of life is. All it is is just a plan to follow Jesus and to live in Trinitarian life. Let's follow him together. In closing, let me just read over you from the prologue to St. Benedict's Rule. This is from the sixth century, the mountains in northern Italy. Let me read this over you. In drawing up its regulations, or regula in Latin, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. The good of all concerned, however, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults and to safeguard love. Do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It is bound to be narrow at the outset. But as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments, our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight. Mm -hmm.